0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I better hurry because I only have five minutes. <laughs> Luke chapter three is where we're going to be. We're going to be begin reading in verse four in just a just a moment. Um, if you don't have a Bible, certainly there's one in the seat beneath you or in front of you. We just encourage you to to um, open that book to page seven twenty six. And you'll be right where you need to be. I think I've said this too frequently, but if you haven't guessed already, we're expository preaching is what we do. Essentially, we work through the scriptures verse by verse, chapter by s- chapter. So if you're new, and I don't know if you are or not, some of you, most of you are not, that's, if you're wondering why we're preaching what we're preaching from or about, the, the reason why is because that's the place in the Bible we're at. So... We're going to read and then we're going to stand and pray and, and um, I do want to thank Nancy for telling us all about Haiti and I would encourage you to, to be generous um, to them. Verse 4, chapter 3, we're going to read all the way to verse 20. As, in, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that... Out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptized you with water. Now, just listen to that. I baptized you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire and with many other words John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them but when John rebuked Herod the tetrarch because of Heroditus, his brother's wife and all the other evil things he had done Herod added this to them all he locked John up in prison now let's stand please let's have a brief prayer Asking God for his blessing and help. Father, we, we come as we did last week, Lord, with much the same request on our lips. We do pray that this morning's prayer would be the expression of our lives. We ask, God, that we would seek to live for you these days. And so we ask that you would take my words and speak through them and take our minds and help us to think. And that you would take our hearts and Open them up to live in the love and trust and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that men and women would leap out of darkness into light and we would all live a Christian life afterwards and that you, Lord God, would continue to blow on the trumpet of our lives, beginning with myself, that we would have a strong dose of decisive reality that comes through the truth of your word, Lord. Stir our souls and great, greatly increase our affection for Christ, for one another, and the lost. Please be near us this morning. We we're in great need of help, God. And so we ask for this help. The nations are in need of your help. This morning, God, we ask for your help. And we pray these things for Christ's glory and for His sake. Amen. You can be seated. Now just a quick review, the last the last time we were together, we made these points from the scriptures. We said that the, the climate that John was thrusted into, and because that matters, we said it was marked by brutality and immorality, and especially, and don't forget this, especially excessive greed. We noted that John was preaching these words and many others like them, because he was one filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 of chapter 5, or uh, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 15. And his words came from God, verse 2 of chapter 3. And that he was preaching with other words, the gospel or the good news, verse 18 of chapter 3. So we noted that John, one, was not sending himself. It's very, very important that we understand that. That no man can send himself to preach. And second, that John was not preaching in a vacuum. Okay? He wasn't just rattling off phrases and sentences. There's questions that we're going to talk about today. Those questions were stirred by John's preaching. And John's answers are going to be marked by their setting. And remember, their setting was excessive greed and brutality and darkness. Now, I said that to say this, that all John was doing was what every genuine preacher and even evangelists, and even people who talk to people about Christ, what every Person does correctly is through the ages, and they're always done. You take the given gospel and you preach it always in light of the given circumstances. You're not like a horrible salesperson that's just rattling off lines, you know, point one, point two, point three, point four. You're taking the given gospel and you're listening and you're thinking and you're giving it into the given circumstances. So here's some examples Christ Jesus Himself. You'll know in the New Testament, John chapter four, Jesus is confronted by a woman. In fact, actually he confronts her. And the scripture says that she's been married far too many times to far too many men. And these men have used her and mistreated her. And then they left her. And Jesus said to her, A, I know you're a single lady. And I know that you're living with a man. And I know the reason why you were a single lady. Now, dear lady, I can give you water that if you drink, you will never ever thirst again. I know you're thirsty. Your life shows that. But, honey, please listen. Drink from me, and you will never ever be thirsty again. So, this woman who was looking for love in all the wrong places, all of a sudden, found Christ, said yes to Christ. And as you read the rest of the context, she be, or the, the context, she becomes an evangelist. Okay, Paul does the same thing in Galatians, right? Galatian church, what is wrong with you guys? You're taking the gospel and you're setting aside for another gospel, which is no gospel at all. There is absolutely no way, Galatian church, that you can be justified by doing good. That is wrong. That is not the gospel. To be justified by a holy God takes an act of God. It takes faith in Jesus Christ. Galatian church, don't be led astray. If you rely on the law for your salvation, you're done. You're under a curse. Galatian church, if you rely on Christ for salvation, you're going to be in Christ and you're going to be in the forever family of God. James, do the church and the Jewish Christians scattered everywhere. What's wrong with you guys? Your faith in Christ if it's not accompanied by action for Christ, is a dead faith. It is no faith at all. Faith without deeds is dead. You could be dead. You people are making it appear as if your union with Christ means absolutely nothing. It could be a dead faith. And so James warns the listeners. Again, this is all they're doing. They take the given gospel and they Speak that given gospel into the given circumstances. And that's what John was doing. Second thing we said was the cause. Why were so many people coming? Why were these great company of people coming? And the answer that we read was verse two, it was God. God was doing it and God was sending John out to do it. And we took great pains to say that it wasn't the location. okay. It's logically, but it's not biblically when you're thinking that way. It wasn't the location, it wasn't his appearance, it wasn't his ability to endear himself to people. So, the things that he said, the people went, Oh, he's such a nice person. Oh, this is wonderful. I'll come back and listen to him. I like to be told that I'm a snake. No, it was Almighty God. The cause of this great company of people was a divine initiative so that we would know that God, yes, God shut John up in the desert. He shut him up there so that he can send him out from the desert and send him to preach the word that God himself gave him. Verse four, like a, like a voice, the literal translation, a voice howling in the wilderness. I like that. Howling in the wilderness. So the people are coming. They're compelled to come. Why are the people compelled to come? God. And let's think that through. God himself will be no man's debtor. There will be no reputable buts on judgment day, B-U-T-S. But I never knew, but I didn't know, but I had a cruel father, but I lived in a difficult place, but I was so poor. No reputable buts at the coming judgment. Okay, that was last time. Now, as we work immediately into the verses before us this time, we we'll just have a few words to guide us. The first word is content. What was the content of John's preaching? What was John saying? Now, any quick reading of this verses, we know that there's intensity there. We have we've already acknowledged this. The axe is at the root of the tree. You better produce good fruit, or you're going to be thrown in the fire. The judgment is coming soon. The Messiah is the one who will bring it. There's an unquenchable fire, and it's out there and it's coming. Now, the first thing I asked myself when I read that is who has that kind of courage anymore? I mean, let's just be really honest. John takes the message, the given message from God, and he takes it into the giving time that God had given him and to the given people, the people that are set before him. And John's intensity matches the seriousness of the message, a judgment, and it matches the listener's hostility towards God, right? Someone said to me, and actually, I heard this, someone suggested that the reason why this kind of stuff bothers people is because it has the idea of like snake handlers from Tennessee, okay? There were churches in Tennessee, not too far from where we lived, where people handled snakes in the name of Jesus Christ. Or the guys that hold the sign that try to dress like Jesus, the end is near. Or the CNN preacher who basically rehashes the week's top stories and keeps saying over and over again behind the pulpit, it's never been this worse. It's never been this worse. It's never been this worse. And we all know preaching like that. Or, regrettably, the kind of preaching that says, I'm going to tell you what you can do with your stuff, and I'm going to make you feel guilty about the stuff that you have. Now, you sit there for the next 35 minutes and listen. None of that is preaching. What John is doing here is he takes a message that is difficult and he gives it for God's glory and for the sake of the people. Bishop Ryle said of John in 1856, 140 plus years ago, there is in our time, 1856, a Mormon dislike of strong language, an excessive fear of giving any offense, a constant fear of directness or plain speaking. Now, that was 1856. What do you think about 2010? Spurgeon says the exact same thing in the same century. And by the way, Spurgeon was the most popular preacher of his day. And this is what he said. For men who wish to win disciples ordinarily adopt milder language than John's and choose more attractive themes, for they fear that they will drive their listeners away if they're too personal and speak too harshly. There is not much danger of that nowadays the 19th century for the current thinking today is that the gospel ministers instead of piercing men and women with the sword of the spirit they only show them the sword's handle and they let them see the bright diamonds on the scabbard but never let them feel the sharpness of the two-edged blade they always comfort always console always cheer but never allude to the true terrors of the Lord and we need to move that to our modern day there's a book The reason for God, Timothy Keller, a Presbyterian preacher in New York, a very popular preacher, said this. He quoted this poll. 80% of people in our day, in our contents, think that their conscience and nothing else determines their destiny. And they refuse to believe in a God who will punish people, even if they're wrong, as long as they are sincere. Now, the message of John is heavy with judgment. And it's clear on the way of escape from that judgment. Don't Miss that. John's message is narrow because God's message is narrow. God is the one who is revealed here who has great hostility towards sin. But in great love and the coming of Messiah, he will save the people from their wickedness as if only if they would just fess up to their wickedness. And don't miss that. This is an unloving message. I'm not going to tell you the whole truth And I'm not going to tell you anything about the truth. That's unloving. This is an unloving message. I'm going to provide them no way of escape from the truth. Yes, I'm going to tell them how bad they are, but I'll never tell them how good Christ is. But John doesn't do that here. He pleads for them. Please flee from the coming wrath. There's a tremendous danger. There's eternal danger which overtakes all men and women if you do not flee from it. John, John Stott, in a book, Our Guilty Science, Silence, speaking of me and other Christians, we either lack a thorough knowledge of the gospel or a conviction about its truth, or we lack both. Okay, beginning in verse seven, what's the content? Well, John tells the people, repent and be baptized, right? Repent and be baptized, verse three and verse seven. Now, John was speaking to a people who assumed that they were already safe and chosen. You can see that in verse eight. We have Abraham as our father. It was kind of a free pass. They would wave around. Now let's just stop for a brief moment and let's just think through this. First, there is a way at this time for sins to be pardoned at this time. It was called the Day of Atonement. Why didn't they wait? Why were they coming out here to admit that they were sinners, to admit repentance and to be baptized? Did the Jewish listeners all of a sudden forget that? And so they just wanted to come now to hear John because they're lost and don't know what to do with their sins? I don't think not what I think is happening is this. The futility of their worship was exposed by the power of the Holy Spirit through and at the preaching of John. I'm going to say it again. The futility of their worship was exposed by the power of the Holy Spirit at the preaching of John. And, and this is what makes this account so striking. Okay? When Old Testament prophets would speak like this, They got their heads cut off. Eventually, John would get his head cut off. You'll need to know this, and it's important. For a Gentile to become a Jew, three things needed to happen. Number one, they had to embrace the teaching of the Jewish tradition, and they had to make a public confession that they accepted it. Number two, the males had to be circumcised when they were of age. And number three, and this is where it's important, there was a baptism ceremony. Because when the Gentile would come to the Jewish faith faith, and they were baptized, they they were saying that I am unclean. And as I go down in the water, the washer symbolically washes away my past uncleanness as a Gentile. And then when I come up, I'm clean. I'm not exactly a Jew, but I am no longer a Gentile. Baptism was known and only used for the Gentile. And here comes the wild man, John. And he's saying, you're not right with God, Jewish people. And you're going to need a washing. And that did not bless them. But when John said that, and when they were baptized, what they were saying was this, that I acknowledge as a Jew that I'm no better than a Gentile. Well, that is striking. That is real. And that is exactly what's happening. Now, Is John's baptism Jesus' baptism? Absolutely not. A Christian baptism is a baptism that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What this baptism was is simply this. They were saying that they were wrong, that they have disobeyed, that they repent, and they want to be ready for the coming of Messiah. Okay? And we need to know this. That these same people who say, we repent, we want Messiah to come, will be the same people who later on will say, crucify him, crucify him. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What is, what is a genuine repentance? Because the same people here will be the same people that will want Jesus dead. So I have to ask the question, what is a genuine repentance? Because it's important to all of us, I think. Well let's listen to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 10, 7, excuse me, 7, 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Okay, let's see what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. In other words, genuine repentance is to grieve and hate sin because it grieves a holy God. We see sin's danger. We see its filthiness, its offensiveness, and how it's absolutely contrary to the holy nature of God. So that inside of us, we grieve, we hate it, we turn from it, we turn to God, and we apprehend the mercy of God in Christ and promise to walk with Christ. Now, if you're listening, you're thinking, well, I'm going to need to do that every day. Amen. Repentance is not a one-shot deal. It is a forever quality of life this side of heaven. Genuine repentance is motivated not by fear of loss or punishment, Get that. Esau was sorry that he sinned, not because he offended God. He was sorry that he lost his birthright. He was sorry for himself. Genuine repentance is never feeling sorry for yourself. We might say, I might say that I feel bad when I sin. So please God, take these bad feelings away. That is not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is sincere. It's remorseful. We know that we have offended a holy God. God has been disobeyed. His honor ignored. His authority ignored. And then after that, we can say, after we acknowledge that, we can say, now please, for Jesus' sake, God, take away this guilt. Take away these horrible feelings and let me live again. Now I have to say this, And I have to ask this question. Have you honestly, genuinely repented? Have you honestly come to the point where you realize that your rebellion grieves God? Your arrogance, your pride, your self-deception, be it religious or otherwise. Have you ever come to grips that you have no affection for Jesus Christ? That you have no adoration for Jesus Christ? And so then you have no sadness of heart when you sin. Now, if that's the case, then this is not a mean statement. I would urge you for the sake of Jesus Christ, repent and flee from the coming wrath. Now, that's the content. That's what John's preaching was. Now, John's audience is prepared to do that. this. We can see it. So then in the preparation, they have lots of questions. The people agree with John's preaching and they show their concern by asking questions, okay? You get that? They don't just come in, blow in and blow out, blow up the radio, go home, blow up the TV and go home and blow up the oven and just get everything that we've done here and lay it aside. They're thinking, okay, John, we've got questions. There's a context here of questions that we wanna ask you. And so they're serious and the questions mark their seriousness. Now we need to do this quickly. Remember we said that the time would mark by greed? There's a maxim that usually is true that as the leaders go, so go the people. Well, you can tell by John's answers that he's dealing with a very, very greedy people because every one of his answers to their questions have to do with money provision, okay? Now, when I thought of that, I immediately went to the most highest intellectual song that I know about money. And if you're guessing it came from the Beatles, you're right. And the, th- the song is money. Your lovin' gives me a thrill. But your lovin' don't pay the bills. Now give me money. Yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. Money don't get everything, it's true. But what it don't get, I can't use. Now give me money. Yeah, that's what I want. And finally, they say this. They just let it out. Well, now give me money. That's what I want. I want a lot of money. That's what I want. I want a lot of money. I want to be free. Oh, they just let it out, didn't they? Because if we have lots of money, then surely we'll be free. Isn't it funny that after they wrote this song, just about a year or two later, they wrote this song, I Don't Care Much for Money, because money can't buy me love. Can't buy me love. Okay. It's helpful, I think. Verse 11 To the crowds, they have a question What should we do? This is what John says Stop being excessive about your possessions. If you have two tunics, and a tunic was a basic staple of life, everyday wardrobe. It's like our, if you would, our socks, our, our undershirts, okay? And it was typically an outer garment that they would wear in the day. Now, John says, if you have two, then give one to the person who doesn't have any. And if you have food, then do the exact same thing. Share your food, share your clothes. Be moved with compassion when you see needs that are around you. Now, I thought to myself, okay, what is it that I have that's a basic staple of life that I only have two of? This is far too much information, but you're going to know. I have two kids, but they're not going anywhere. I only have two good pastoral jokes. So if you know some, give me some. I only have two pairs of athletic shoes, two pairs of jeans, two sports coats, two winter coats, and two pairs of black pants. Now, here's the point. If I have to give two for the one, then it only leaves me with one. If I only have one left, then something terrible could happen and I only got one. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want that. Oh, yes. Something terrible could happen and I would be stuck with none. So I better keep two because it's much, much wiser to keep two. Because if I only have one and something happens, then I'm done. So I shouldn't give the two because I only might have one. And that would be dumb. said the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why those anxious human beings rush around and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it might be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Verse 12, tax collectors, what should we do? We know these guys, they're shysters, right? They were the kind of people who extorted money from the common person. They charged high fees and they took the money and pocketed most of it for themselves. They took it from people who couldn't afford it. They're convicted. They ask, what shall we do? They probably know the answer. Now listen carefully. This is what John tells them to do. He tells them to do what you're told. Collect only what is fair. Have integrity. No tricks. That's John. Now listen carefully. Because this is what we're tempted to do in our day. John, couldn't you just put a plug in for lower taxes? I mean, come on. I mean, they're just... Couldn't you just said something a little bit about that? You know why he does not? Because John has his eye on the ball. There's a judgment coming. Taxes mean very little. There's a judgment coming. People could die and be burned in the unquenchable fire. John keeps his eye on the ball. And he says, look, guys, do what you're told. Produce good fruit. And keep genuine repentance in mind because there's a day coming when taxes won't even matter. Now, to the soldiers, what should we do? These soldiers are more like police officers of our day. And he says to them, to these peacekeepers, don't blackmail. The actual phrase there in verse 14a, don't exhort money, in the Greek language translates, don't shake violently. It's a Jewish idiom. It means to shake people down. If you're Italian, you're right away, you know what that means. You're trying to get money from them and you're using your position and your power to shake them down for money. And John says to the soldiers, don't do that. Be content with what you are earning. Content. <laughs> Archeo, to be satisfied. Be satisfied with your income. They were learning, everybody was learning from John that a discontented, ungenerous, greedy spirit is a fruit of an ungodly life. They were forgetting what we are at times tempted to forget, that the good news of the gospel touches every area of our life and especially dollars and cents. They forget that all things come to us not by chance and not by human might, They come to us by God's fatherly hand and they forget this past hymn, which is one of my favorite hymns in the context of money. This is what it says. Praise to the Lord who does prosper thy work and defend thee. Isn't that true? Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. And if you were in my car when we were listening to this hymn, I turn it, I push the pause button. I say, everybody stop. Now let's pay close attention to these words that are coming up. And it says this. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Who with his love doth befriend thee? And then there's another verse, and the kids hate this. Praise to the Lord that does nourish thy life and restore thee, fitting thee well for the task that is ever before thee. And I push the pause button. Kids, listen to this. This is important. Then to thy need, he like a mother does speed. People Are spreading the wings of grace over me. Now let's push the pause button. Why do you think I say that to my kids? What's the context of our world? You turn on every radio station, Christian or not, everywhere, what do they say? There's not gonna be enough. We're gonna run out. Run out. There's not gonna be enough. There'll never be enough. Everything's terrible. What are we gonna do? There's a reason why they call economics the dismal science. Because there's no God in economics. And I tell them this in context so they don't have to fret and worry about their Father from heaven who loves them and will richly provide for them. So this morning, this could be our problem, I think it could be, that we are at such a state of discontentment that either it works itself us out by us being greedy or free, fearfully afraid to be generous or a greed that would make us steal. It's not fair. I need more money, so I'll take what I think that I should get and don't let God or my conscience tell me otherwise. Now, we need the Scripture here, don't we? I think we do. This is what Jesus would say to us this morning, tenderly. This is quoting from Jesus. Fear not, dear flock. It is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. I know what you need before you ask. He would say to us, what is it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He would say to us, I own everything. And he would say to us, give, and it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, and so on. Now, we need to say this quickly. And then we're gonna move to the next point. You have tax collectors. You have soldiers, both known sinners, with Jewish people. What's wrong with that picture? If you're a Pharisee, the Pharisees taught that you should be separated from these kind of people. And yet at the preaching of God, these laws, they had six hundred and thirteen laws that told them how to be separated from the ungodly tax collector and the ungodly soldier. And all of a sudden, because of God, there's a bunch of people, supposedly good and supposedly bad, all together in the same company. And it was well before The song that was written, the more we stay together, the happier. The more we get together, the happier we will be. What's bringing all these people together? The bad and the good. God. Wouldn't it be great if we had seats filled with sinners here? Wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, besides us. Yeah, that's what God does. Okay, we need to move on. You didn't get that. If you want to talk to me more about that after the sermon, I'll give it to you. Okay, the content of John's preaching we've talked about. The context of John's preaching we've talked about. Now, what's the consequences of John's preaching? Because there is always a consequence when you preach, typically. We're just going to do this briefly. Number one, pride. Okay, John was preaching so good and so right that the people, verse 15 and 16, began to say, oh, man, he's it, he's it. He's got the spirit. Oh, man, he's the Messiah. He should be in the cities. He shouldn't be here in the wilderness. Oh, man, oh, man. What does John do? Maybe he remembered this scripture. Uzziah was greatly helped until he became powerful. His pride led to his downfall. First, John takes great pains to say that he is not the Messiah. Notice that people don't ask him. The text says that it's in their hearts. And John, being a person of discernment, quickly addresses that. He must be greater, I must be less. I am not the Messiah. He abnegates himself in spite of his success to a status lower than the slave. And you can see that by the way that he answers there in the second part of verse 16, that he's not worthy to untie the sandals of our Savior. Now, there was a rabbinic saying at this time that said this, that every slave performs for his master, a student must perform for his teacher. That every service a slave performs for his master, a student must perform for his teacher, except loosening his sandals and loosening the thongs of those sandals. Now, that's why John said that. What was John saying? That I am least than a slave compared to the greatness of Messiah. Consequence number two, the crowds are coming. The moving crowds that are coming to see John, immediately John points them to Jesus to the Messiah, he preaches the and the good news. One is coming, and my preaching is like water, but his is like fire. Again, John, John takes this concern here. Now, what he says there in verse 17 is, is good and important. He told us before that the ax was at the root of the tree, but there was nobody's hand on the ax. Now he's telling us that there is a God hand, if you would, And God has his hand on the plow thing. And now he's going to start winnowing things. Giving us the picture of our head that the judgment is not coming. The judgment is now. And if you think about the life of Christ, it's exactly what is happening. People would come face to face with Messiah. He would give them a choice, the good rich young ruler. And he walked away and Jesus let him walk away. Judgment is now, it's coming, it's serious. Now, please listen to me. The way that we must compel people to come to Jesus Christ is not, well, you know, you just take your time and see what happens. The way is, listen, I love you, but there's a choice to be made today because in all honesty, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Is that not true? Does anybody know what tomorrow holds? No, we don't. We compel them to come now. We can't make them, and we certainly don't force them, but we absolutely should compel them. Consequence number three, and then we're done. Integrity, right? John all of a sudden gets an invitation to Herod's palace. Will John be the same John in the palace as he was in the prairie, right? How many times have we seen this? As soon as an evangelical person of popularity gets his picture with the president, within about a year after his photo op, we find that he's got like 10 wives and 600 girlfriends and all that kind of stuff. Okay, John, will you be the same John that you were in the prairie as you were in the palace? Will you change your message at all, John? That's the test, right? Now, Mark makes the point that Herod liked listening to John. Mark that. But he doesn't change. Why doesn't John change? Because it's inside of him. God put it there. And he looks at the one who controls his earthly destiny in part. And he says, Herod, I want to tell you something. You're an adulterer. In fact, Herod, because of your family line, you, have, you are committing incest. And you want to tell John, oh, John, please save yourself. John, you would be far more effective out in the prairie and in the wilderness talking to people than you're about ready to meet your end. So just, just let up John just a little bit. Come on now. Think, John. This is where we close. Why doesn't John do that? Because John would rather face the wrath of Herod, who can kill his body, than face the wrath of God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So maybe some of us would ask God this morning that He would make us this type of person for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Let's bow together and pray. Now, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, as we look at John, it's clear that he is a man of integrity. He is a man of humility. He is a man that is certain about the outcome of his life. He is a man who bows to the authority of you, a holy God. Lord, we can't be John but we can be like John and like Jesus in the context that you have placed us in. Lord, we pray that we would be this kind of person for Jesus' sake. Now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both this morning and evermore for Jesus' sake. Amen.